0: All right, good morning, everybody. Morning. I see they, uh, they left one trophy up here for the preacher who can get us out of church on time today. That's going to... Yeah. Oh, good. All right, good, good. You know, I, I got to be honest, I'm in awe that every week you guys sit and listen to me. I think that's an amazing thing. Um, you're patient and you're kind for doing that. Okay, that's, that's enough. Um, But I'm grateful for your attention, and um, we're going to go a little over time today. I've got a trick up my sleeve. I'm a Midwesterner, so I can talk fast, so I'll do that. Uh, But there's material I want to cover, and I'm excited to cover it because we get the opportunity today to learn more about our Savior. And I hope you're just as excited as I am to do exactly that Uh, So grateful for David and Nugget and the work you do in helping these kids through um, the Bible Bowl. And so proud of you guys for the work that you did through Bible Bowl. So they've got a table set up outside under the tent. If you haven't already seen it, encourage you to spend a minute and uh, talk with them and take a closer look at the trophies. And especially our young people, middle school, high school age kids, if you're interested in getting involved, September it starts again. Is that right? Uh, get involved in the next Bible Bowl, please talk to David or Nugget or any of the kids about how to do that. So we're going to continue in the Gospel of John. Last week, we started looking at what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, where John uses all of this rich language to help us come to terms with who Jesus is, introducing us to ideas and concepts that he's going to use repetitively throughout the rest of his book. And so it's an especially important passage to spend time in. We talked about a couple things last week. If I'll remind you of the first three verses of the Gospel of John. So in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, fill in the blank for me, was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So last week, we talked about two things specifically that we find in the first three verses. Where John begins his gospel. The story of Jesus begins where? In the beginning. What beginning? In the beginning of everything. That Jesus is there with God because he is God. He is the power of God at work in creation. And so we talked about that. We also talked about the term that John uses. He doesn't call Jesus by name when he begins the story of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And what does it mean that he used that term? Again, connecting it back to the power of creation. God spoke. His Word spoke creation into existence. But also that the Word is used to do what? Communicate, if you remember last week's lesson. And God is showing himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me just show you what he says in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. We talked about all the ways that God has made himself known to his creation, but ultimately he makes himself known to us through the Son. You guys remember a couple weeks ago when we started this, I made a big deal out of John chapter 13, The disciple whom Jesus loved, when he's first introduced to us, he's reclining against Jesus. And I talked about how the language is actually, he's in the bosom of Jesus. Talked about that intimacy that he has. Just that John's making a big deal out of the fact that the disciple whom Jesus loved had a very special relationship with the son, with Jesus. And could thereby share things about him that other people couldn't. Well, guess what terminology John uses in verse 18 when he says he's in closest relationship with the father. Guess what the original wording is? He is in the bosom of the Father. So we're back in the bosom again, all right? Not my language, John's. What is he trying to get across? That Jesus, the Son, had an intimate relationship with the Father no one else has ever had. So he is able to show us God the Father like no one else ever could or ever will. We come to know the Father through the Son. So that's what we talked about last week. If you weren't here for that lesson, I encourage you to go online and find it so you can get caught up. What we're going to talk about today, two more things that come up in these first 18 verses that I want to draw your attention to. First of all is what he says in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is introducing us to another theme that he's going to use over and over in his gospel, this illustration of the battle between darkness and and light and jesus is that light that has come into the world to overcome darkness if you look at john chapter 3 verses 16 through 20 if you want to turn over there with me one of these places where john uses this illustration again and this is in the context of jesus famous conversation with nicodemus and we know verse 16 but let me read what follows for God so loved the world, so this is John's own commentary on the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son." This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So John's introducing us to this illustration of dark versus light. Jesus is the light, but the sad reality of the story of Jesus is even though light came into darkness, not everyone accepted him as light. And he tells us why. Why did not everyone accept Jesus as the light that was coming into the world? Because some of us love darkness too much. And we don't want our evil to be exposed by the light. And so he talks about it in John 3. He talks about it in John chapter 9, if you'll turn over there with me. In John chapter 9, we find another interesting place where Jesus uses this illustration in reference to himself. In John chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, as he went along, he saw a, a man blind from birth. He's born blind. And his disciples asked him, and they're trying to understand what happened to this man based on the way that they thought at the time. He's, they ask him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Surely his blindness is a result of someone's sin. This is Jesus' response. Neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of Excuse me, works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So we see it there in John chapter 9. We see it again in John chapter 12. Jesus told them, you are going to have the light, in reference to himself, for just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness. Overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become what? Children of light. Jesus brings light into the world and he invites us to step into that light with him, so that Paul, as Paul puts it in one of his epistles, we might be transferred from the world of darkness into the kingdom of his amazing light. Jesus is this light that has come into. The world, But here's the thing. Last week we talked about creation, how God speaks to us through creation, how God makes himself known to creation, and how amazing creation can be in all of its splendor. But we also know this. In Romans chapter 8, he said, Paul says this, in referencing the reality of the creation that we live in, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. In the context there, Paul is talking about the reality that creation itself is currently in bondage. And it's waiting to be set free from that bondage. What is he talking about? Well, go back to the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are beautiful. Two different lenses through which to see creation. And if you remember that account, God gets done with the work of creation. He sees what he's made and he says, what? Three words. What does he say? It is good. And wouldn't it be awesome if the story of the Bible ended in Genesis chapter 2 because that would mean we were still in the garden with God, right? And it'd make reading through the Bible every year a whole lot easier because it's only two chapters long. But it doesn't end there. We have Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? God's good creation is corrupted by sin that enters into the garden. And part of that curse in Genesis chapter 3 is that even the ground is cursed because of that sin, Creation is paying the price for our rebellion against our Creator. And so all of creation is now facing corruption because of the reality of sin. Just to say this, so that you can understand, that creation can be amazing and creation can be beautiful, but we also recognize that creation is sometimes very, very broken, isn't it? We see that, and we recognize that. Sometimes creation looks like this picture I took in central Oregon several years ago. It's amazing. We sat there for I don't know how long, hours, while Paisley munched on Cheerios. She was just a little baby at the time. I didn't want to leave. It was astonishing. Special place because a lot of these places you go, people trample all over that moss and kill it, and it takes like 100 years to grow back. This is a, a place where people hadn't ruined yet. And it was just a moment to just bask in God's creation. Sometimes creation looks like that. It takes your breath away. But sometimes creation looks like this. Taken recently in Ukraine. This is what creation looks like sometimes. Sometimes creation looks like this. Newport Beach, a few years ago, wintertime. I've seen a lot of sunsets in my life. There's nothing like the sunsets in Southern California in the winter on the beach. And God lights the sky up. And you just sit there in awe of what he can do. Sometimes creation looks like that, but sometimes creation looks like this. Scene from Uvalde, Texas. After the school shooting that happened there. And you see scenes like that and you think, why? And we all cry out and lament to God, why? Why does creation look like this? Why is this the reality that we have to face? And other times creation looks like this. This is yesterday afternoon. Went on a hike. This is what we saw poppies in all their glory. Maybe the most intense color you'll ever see in creation is a California orange poppy. But creation doesn't always look like that, does it? Sometimes creation looks like fill-in-the-blank. Not a family here, probably, who hasn't been touched by cancer. Why does creation look like that? Why do we face the harsh reality of the fact that we live in a world plagued by what? Darkness. And sometimes darkness feels like it's going to swallow us up whole. And all we want is just a beam of light to show us that there's something beyond this darkness that we have to look forward to. And there is, and His name is Jesus. He came into this darkness. He joined us in this darkness to become a light for us, to illuminate for us that there is a hope and a reality waiting for God's good creation on the other side of sin, A sin that he came to abolish and do away with in his body on that cross for our behalf. He is the light of this world. And I'm glad that you are here this morning because that means that you're ready to stop walking in darkness. It means that you recognize that he is the light and that there is a path forward for you out of this into something so much better. And I would just remind you of this reality that Jesus breaks through this darkness with a light that cannot be overcome. When we feel like the darkness is going to overcome us, Jesus offers us a light that darkness itself cannot overcome. Light and dark, it's a battle, right? Well, kind of. There's a battle. There's a spiritual battle being played out. We read about it in Scripture. Go read Ephesians chapter 6. Remind yourself of the reality that we live in, where there is a spiritual battle unfolding, but the victory has already been won. Has it not? Jesus has secured the victory for us, and so we live in light of that hope. That light and darkness are at odds with each other, but the light will only ever win. And I just remind you of that. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because you know what? The darkness cannot overcome it. Revelation chapter 21, Jesus breaks through this darkness and light, and he shows us the hope that we have to look forward to. In Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And one of the, my favorite ways of John again here illustrating what that vision looked like to him is this. The city does not need The sun or the moon to shine on it. Well, then where's the light going to come from? For the glory of God gives its light. And the Lamb, who is Jesus, is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. Instead of living in darkness, hoping for light, we will live in perpetual light where darkness is no longer a reality. That is the hope that Jesus lays out in front of us. And I invite you this morning, if you haven't already, to grab a hold of that hope. Second thing I want to point out to you quickly this morning is this. He talks about us becoming children of God. And I want you to think for just a minute a little more deeply about what it means to be a child of God and how it is that we become children children of God, because John touches on something important here. So in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, he says this, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, we know what he's talking about because we know the rest of the story. What happened? It was the Israelites themselves who Jesus came to redeem, fulfill the promises God had made to his covenant people that were themselves shouting what? Crucify him, crucify him. So even his own, didn't recognize who he truly was. Not everyone, but the majority did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God, it's a different kind of lineage that we have now. And I want to talk about this for just a minute this morning. I was listening to an interview with Andrew J. Byers. He's a New Testament scholar. He had written a book called John and the Others, a commentary on John. And he had something to say about this that I thought was really profound, and I wanted to share it with you. He makes this comment. He says, the community of God's people, that's us, are not ethnically defined, but rather divinely determined. And the reason that's important is because People throughout history have convinced themselves that their relationship with God is determined solely by ethnicity. So I lay claim to a relationship with my God simply because of who I was born into as a people. Now that's not to diminish the covenant God made with the descendants of Abraham But it is to undo something sinister that creeps into this world and into Christianity from time to time. And I'll tell you what that is in just a minute. John chapter 3 and verse 16. God's community of people now is inclusive. It's inclusive in a way that no other community of people has ever been. We talk a lot about inclusivity in the world today and how much we strive towards inclusivity. But we are broken people and we're not very good at it. God has done something through Jesus that we can't do on our own. He has created community where community could never naturally exist. John chapter 3 and verse 16, we referenced it in a minute. What does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, not whoever is born of the right parents, but whoever believes in him, it's now become inclusive through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29. You know this. I'll read it quickly. I preached on it a few months ago. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, There is nor is there male or female. Now we talked about this a few months ago. He's not undoing gender. He's not undoing ethnicity. He's not eliminating cultural differences. You're all either male or female. You're all born to someone in a certain time. You speak a certain language. You're of a certain culture. He's not undoing all of that. He's just saying that Throughout human history, we take those things and we use them to build walls between ourselves, right? And we partition people off. And throughout history, that's exactly what people have done. Partition people off from an approach towards God. You can't come to God because you're not fill in the blank. And Paul is telling us unequivocally unequivocally that in Jesus Christ, God has done away with that reality. All of us. Our children of God, if we have put him on in baptism, because we've clothed ourselves in Christ. And he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, this is the amazing thing. Then you are Abraham's seed. But I'm not Israelite. How can I be Abraham's seed? Heirs according, not to the flesh, but what? According to the promise. My genealogy does not trace back to Father Abraham. It just doesn't. But it does through Jesus because of the promise that was made through him. I am a child of God, not according to ethnicity, but according to promise and according to confession. God's family is both inclusive. We just talked about it. Everyone is welcome. Everyone can come to God through Christ Jesus. But it is exclusive, just not in the ways that we think about it. The exclusivity of God's people is determined by their confession, not their race or their ethnicity. John talks about it here in John chapter 1. We can become children of God when we recognize who the light is. When we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we inherit the right to become children of God. We don't lay claim to that right through any other means other than our recognition of who Jesus is. It is A promise made by faith. It is our faith in Jesus that brings us into covenant relationship with our Father. In other words, there's no person on this earth now that can say, I belong to God and you don't because of my ancestry and you don't have the right one. And that might seem basic, but we get it wrong so often. In John chapter 8, we see both of these ideas that we're talking about this morning. The idea of Jesus as a light unto the world and the idea that we come to God through faith in who he is coming together and kind of clashing. Jesus has this long conversation with the Jewish people that he's meeting with at the time. And in chapter 8 and verse 12, the whole thing started by this comment that Jesus makes. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sounds awesome, right? Except their basic question to him is, well, who are you and how do you have the right to say that to us? And it devolves into this conversation about lineage. And Jesus says things to them like, I am from above, you are from below. I am doing the will of my Father, you are doing the will of the your father and they even go so far at one point to point out to Jesus that we are children of Abraham and we're not illegitimate which I happen to think is just an insult that they're hurling at Jesus based on his own parental background right you were born illegitimately because your father wasn't really your father and I think they knew that I think they use that as ammunition against him. So it turns into these insults. But what Jesus does at the end of that, he says this. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father. He's speaking to the Israelites there. The devil. Now how happy are you if somebody says that to you? You are of your father, the devil. It is antagonistic, but he's trying to get them to understand something. He says, and you want to carry out your father's desires. This is the reason I bring this up. Throughout history, some have used the Gospel of John, and specifically passages like the one we read in chapter 1, and this passage from John chapter 8, to breed anti-Semitism. And to say that Jesus is making a blanket statement against Jewish people, that Jewish people are of the devil. No. No, that is not at all what he is talking about here. And I want you to understand this. Any reading of John that leads to anti-Semitism is explicitly wrong and is of itself of the devil. The Jews in John chapter 8 weren't children of the devil because they were Jewish, but because they denied the Christ. This is not a statement about one ethnicity being so poor in value that we get to write books like have been written in the past about the Aryan Jesus. Give me a break. Talk about misreading scripture. And I just want to make this clear to you. Look at the room that we are in right now. Look at the shades of people that are in this room. Paisley's at that point in her life where she loves to color. And, you know, trying to get people's skin tone is important to her. And I always love it when she colors either me or Robin because she's always looking for the peach, crayon. <laughs> and when she's trying to tell people what color we are, she always uses the peach, right? So I'm, I'm peach colored, right? But she recognizes that there's differences in humanity. And those differences are there because they were put there by the Creator and they're beautiful. And they should be celebrated. Whatever, whatever background you come from, shaped who you were but in christ no one gets to lay claim to a relationship with the father to the exclusivity of another group of people based on skin color skin color or ethnicity or race or any other human construct we are all children of our god and we are all invited to become children of god through faith in jesus christ period And I'm going to leave you with this, 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 I'm not going to take your name in vain nugget, this nugget of truth. Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish man. Well, of course he was. But let me elaborate, because it's important that we understand this. When we say the word took on flesh and dwelt among us, we don't mean that the word of God just became some faceless humanoid that dwelt among us. We mean that he became a specific person, in a specific place, in a specific time. He became Jesus of Nazareth. He was a first century Jewish man. Now, that's important for two reasons. Number one, because, as Glenn pointed out this morning at the table, there was promises made concerning who the Redeemer of Israel would be, who the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of mankind would be. And those promises were fulfilled specifically in Jesus. This is why Matthew and Luke go out of their way to record genealogies of Jesus, because God had made specific promises about his lineage, and Jesus fulfilled those specific promises. Ultimately, the promise made to Abraham was what? That through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So it's important to note who Jesus is in space and time, because he fulfilled those promises but the second reason it's important is because jesus experienced darkness the way we experience darkness he experienced humanity not in a generic way but in a specific way he experienced it as a first century jewish man that means that he spoke a specific kind of language he ate a certain kind of food he practiced certain cultural practices his parents were real living people that shaped the way that he grew up. He learned a trade like everyone learns a trade. He knew what it meant to be hungry, to be tired, to be stressed. He knew what it was like to experience puberty as a young person. He was human in every way it meant to be human. He was, yes, fully divine. He was with God and he was God. But when God took on flesh, he became a person, a specific person the way you and I are specific people, and we experience life not generically but specifically. You carry burdens I may not carry. You experience life in ways that I may not experience life. I think about the difference between the way that I grew up and the way that my daughter is growing up all the time. I grew up a child of the 80s and the 90s. It was a good time to grow up. In rural southern Wisconsin, where it felt like the whole world was my backyard. In the summertime, we would get up in the morning, leave on our bikes, and as long as we showed up alive at night, everybody was okay with it, right? Paisley lives in a three-story condo with no yard, directly right next door to her school. We have to go out of our way to show her that there's a world out there that man didn't make, that God made, and help her experience that. She lives next door to her school. I would never allow her to walk the hundred yards it takes to get to her school, because the world is full of evil. That's the reality she's growing up in. You know, gates around her school. Drop her off, get her there safe, right? Except in the back of my mind is always what? How safe is she really? She's growing up in a place I didn't experience. But that's going to shape her. That's going to be her kind of humanity. This is my experience as a person. I'm just telling you that Jesus is embedded in flesh so fully. That when we rob him of who he was as a historical person, we're robbing him of part of that humanity that makes him so precious to us. However, you are experiencing humanity right now, whatever burdens you're carrying, whatever heartache you're feeling, whatever joy you're experiencing, Jesus felt that. And he knows what that's like. He knows what it feels like to walk in darkness. But he breaks through that darkness with an invitation to join him in light. And I leave you with that invitation this morning. If darkness feels like it's swallowing you whole this morning, there is hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if you want light badly in your life, it is available to you here and now. Let's stand, let's sing this last song, and if we can do anything to help bring you closer to your Savior. Please let us know what it is. Let's stand and sing together. Bless the Lord, oh my soul.